Welcome to the Less Wrong Curated Podcast. Tony Coors and the Insanity of Climbing Mountains by Gene Smith, originally posted on the 4th of July 2022. Content warning, death. I've been on a YouTube binge lately. My current favourite genre is disaster stories about mountain climbing. The death statistics for some of these mountains, especially ones in the Himalayas, are truly insane. To give an example, let me tell you about a mountain most people have never heard of, Nanga Parbat. It's an 8,126-metre wall of ice and rock, sporting the tallest mountain face and the fastest change in elevation in the entire world, the Rupal face. Here's an image. It's taken from a green field with a horse grazing in it. There are some trees and then filling the entire sky beyond the horizon is a giant wall of ice. I've posted a picture above, but these really don't do justice to just how gigantic this wall is. This single face is as tall as the largest mountain in the Alps. It is the size of 10 Empire State buildings stacked on top of one another. If you could somehow walk straight up starting from the bottom, it would take you an entire hour to reach the summit. 31 people died trying to climb this mountain before its first successful ascent. Imagine being climber number 32 and thinking, well, I know no one has ascended this mountain and 31 people have died trying, but why not? Let's give it a go. The stories of deaths on these mountains and even much shorter peaks in the Alps or in North America, sound like they are out of a novel. Stories of one mountain in particular have stuck with me. The first attempts to climb tallest mountain face in the Alps, the Eigerwand. The Eigerwand, first attempt. The Eigerwand is the north face of a 14,000-foot peak named the Eiger. After three generations of Europeans had conquered every peak in the Alps, few great challenges remained in the area. The Eigerwand was one of these, widely considered to be the greatest unclimbed route in the Alps. Here is an image of a big snow-covered rock face. It's nearly directly vertical and it's surrounded by clouds and it towers above the clouds that surround it. The peak had already been reached in the 1850s, during the golden age of alpine exploration but the north face of the mountain remained unclimbed. Many things can make a climb challenging. Steep slopes, avalanches, long ascents, no easy resting spots, and more. The Eigerwand had all of those, but one hazard in particular stood out, loose rock and snow. In the summer months, usually considered the best time for climbing, the mountain crumbles. Fist-sized boulders routinely tumble down the mountain. Huge avalanches sweep down its 70-degree slopes at incredible speed. And the huge, concave face is perpetually in shadow. It is extremely cold and windy, and the concave face seems to cause local weather patterns that can be completely different from the pass below. The face is deadly. Before 1935, no team had made a serious attempt at the face. But that year, two young German climbers from Bavaria, both extremely experienced but relatively unknown outside the climbing community, 
decided they would make the first serious attempt. One of the things which makes the climb of the Eiger unique is that nearly the entire face is visible from a mountain resort below. Residents of Kleine Scheidig, a small resort town in the pass, could look directly at the north face when the weather cleared and observe all of these attempts to climb the face. Here is an image taken from that town, Kleine Scheidig, and we see that the face does indeed loom over the town. You can directly see it. All of this was in place long before the first attempt was made. So when the two young Bavarians decide to make an attempt, the world's press was literally staying at the hotel, watching the men through binoculars when the clouds cleared. Not knowing how long the attempt would take, they brought six days of supplies, estimating it would take two or three days to achieve the summit. They started off quite strong, making it all the way up to Eigerwand Station before setting up camp for the night. Yes, you read that correctly. There are train tracks a third of the way up the mountain. Here's the view from a window looking down on, again, not making this up, Grindelwald. Here is an image of a cliff face. It appears that directly beneath the photographer is a completely endless drop. You look like you're very, very far above the valley floor. On the second day, they made little progress, having to contend with the first major ice field of the climb. On the third day, they made it to the second of these and were seen near the top before clouds set in and the view of the face was obscured. When the clouds cleared on the fifth day, it became clear a major disaster was in store. The entire mountain face was covered with several feet of fresh snow, an unusual occurrence for the summer months. Avalanches crashed down the mountain, making it impossible for the climbers to descend via their previous route. The men had no choice but to continue upwards, hoping that they might make it to the top before their supplies run out or they died of exposure. They were last seen alive on day five, high up on the third ice field, with several thousand feet left to the summit. Days later, when an aeroplane flew by the peak to try to locate the climbers, one was spotted frozen solid, standing up in the third ice field. The location later became known as Death Bivouac, so here's a photograph taken from the side of this climb, and it has various landmarks that have been labelled. I won't read them all out, but we have at the bottom first pillar, and then Eigervon Station. That's kind of near the bottom, really. Then we have a first ice field, a second ice field, and then just above the second ice field we have Death Bivouac. And we see that they seem to be just over half the way up the mountain. There's still a very big, nearly vertical cliff above them labelled Ramp, Traverse of the Gods, Spider, and Exit Cracks. The Eigerwand, Second Attempt You'd think that after such a tragedy, climbers might be at least temporarily deterred. But that would be an underestimate of how insane climbers are. From what I have read, several of the climbers that joined the search party to look for the two Bavarians mainly used it as an excuse to scout the mountain for their own attempt Ten men planned to make summit attempts in the 1936 season, but bad weather and climbing accidents reduced that number to just four by July. Two groups decided to make an attempt in 1936. Two men from Bavaria, Andreas Hinterstoisser and Tony Kurz, and two Austrians, 
Willie Angara and Eddie Rayner. During the preliminary expedition, the two groups decided to climb together. Here are photographs of those four men. They're all black and white photographs. The first two are photographed together, the second separately. Top together are Eddie Rayner and Willie Angara, bottom Tony Kortz and Andreas Hinterstosser. On the very first day, Hinterstosser fell 37 metres down the mountain face, but was apparently uninjured. Other than that, the men made good progress. Hinterstoyser used a new technique with fixed ropes to cross a steep rock face, now known as the Hinterstoyser Traverse. Here is an image of somebody traversing a rock face. They've got a series of ropes in parallel strung out horizontally behind their path, and they seem to be moving along those ropes. There's a very sharp drop beneath them, and everything is covered in snow. But crucially, he removed the ropes after making the traverse, and the same move would be much more difficult to pull off if the climbers needed to go back. Clouds settled in over the first night, and the view of the mountain was obscured to the spectators watching through binoculars and telescopes from Kleiner Scheidig below. Early on the second day, it appeared to spectators as though something had gone wrong. Eddie and Willie had stopped ascending. It looked as though Eddie was attending to Willie. Andreas and Tony let down a rope to Willie, who seemed recovered enough to continue his ascent, followed by Eddie. Their progress slowed. By the middle of the day, they had reached Death Bivouac, the final resting place of the German climbers from the year before. But by this point, it was clear to spectators that Willie could not go on. Whatever injury he had suffered during the first day was bad enough to prevent him from continuing. The four began descending and made good progress down the second ice field by the end of the second day. But the rock face between the first and second ice fields would be much more challenging on the way back down, as Andreas had removed the fixed ropes used on the ascent and there was no clear route back down the face. On the third day, a storm rolled in and clouds and mist obscured the face of the Eigerwand to spectators. Avalanches could be seen tumbling down the mountain, bringing a shower of rocks with them. When the clouds briefly cleared, onlookers could see the rock face by which they had ascended to the second ice field had been drenched in freezing rain from the night before. Here is an image showing what it's like when rain falls on rocks and then freezes. It's a kind of a clear-looking ice layer all over the top of everything. And there are some stalactites of ice or sort of drip patterns that have frozen in place. It's very distinct from the snow around it. It became apparent that with the fixed ropes gone, the climbers could not return by that route. The only way down the mountain was to rappel off a 600-foot cliff face. Sensing another disaster might be imminent, a mountaineer named Albert von Allman took the train up to the windows in the Eigerwand Tunnel, close to the base of the cliff that the four men were now preparing to descend. When von Allman poked his head out the window of the Eigerwand Tunnel, he shouted out for the climbers high above him. To his surprise, he heard four replies. All men appeared to be well and said they would be down soon. Von Allman set to work preparing a pot of tea, which he hoped would warm the climbers after the brutal ordeal. Minutes ticked by. After two hours of waiting, 
Von Allman became increasingly worried. He returned to the window and again shouted for the men. This time, only one voice could be heard, Tony Kurtz. The wind made it hard to hear, but Von Allman gathered two pieces of information. Everyone but Tony was dead, and Tony was stuck dangling in the air hundreds of feet above the train tunnel window, unable to descend any further. Von Allman immediately phoned Eigegletscher Station in the valley below, telling them to send a rescue party immediately. At the time, the head of the Mountain Rescue Committee ruled that no guides were to be compelled to take part in the rescue mission, given the extreme risk involved. But three guides volunteered and rode the train up to the window in the mountainside. Here we see an image of a very big door in the mountainside. It appears to have been carved through stone and it's surrounded by concrete. There are some climbers outside it with their gear and various ropes tacked around the outside of the door. And there appears to be a window in the middle of the door. Below this we have another image of the peak. And a little area in red has been circled just beneath halfway up that shows where this door is. Exiting the windows of the Eigewand Tunnel, the guides traversed diagonally upwards on the face towards the base of the cliff from which Tony was hanging. He spoke to them, his voice still strong, despite spending three days on the mountain. The four men had been hit by an avalanche. Hinterstoiser, the strongest climber who had set the rope on the rock face during the ascent, had been swept completely off the mountain face, falling nearly a thousand feet to his death. Willie, Eddie and Tony had all been tied together by a single rope, with Tony in the middle. Both Willie and Tony had been swept off. In the fall, the rope had tangled itself around Willie's neck and strangled him. Eddie, still at the top of the cliff face and tied to both the fallen men, had been smashed against a rock at the top, fracturing his skull before freezing to death soon after. But his frozen body remained pressed against the rock, saving Tony from certain death. Tony was alone, and with 300 feet of empty air below and above him, there was no way for the guides to reach him without climbing 600 feet up the crumbling ice between the first and second ice fields. The distance was too far to throw a rope up. Here's a diagram, so we see Eddie at the top, who is dead with a rope tied to him, and he's wedged behind something, a rock. Then we see that the rope is on its way down the cliff face. Halfway down the rope we have Tony, alive, dangling there. And at the bottom of the rope we have Willie, dead. Then beneath this is an enormous drop. The rescue team is at the bottom of this drop. And then there's an arrow pointing down to the Eigewand window, or safety. With night having fallen, the guides realised they would likely die attempting to climb the ice face and rescue Tony from above. They promised Tony they would return the next morning for another rescue attempt. Tony shouted to them that he would not make it through the night. Long after they left, they could hear him pleading for help as they descended back to the window in the train tunnel. When the guides returned the next morning, Tony has eight-inch icicles hanging from his boots. During the night, the wind has ripped off his left mitten. His hand is now frozen completely solid, along with his lower left arm. It was clear to the guides that there was simply no way to ascend the cliff. With modern equipment, it would have perhaps been possible. But with the mountain climbing equipment of the 1930s, 
there was simply no way to climb a frozen rocky ice face. The first rescue idea was to throw Tony a rope. They even brought rockets to launch a rope up to him. But this plan failed, with all the ropes flying out away from the cliff face into the empty air. The second idea was for Tony to lower a small rope, to which they would tie one of the rescue ropes. Tony could then tie that rope to his and descend the rest of the way down. But Tony had no remaining rope to lower. Somehow he needed to make more rope. The guides could think of one plan that might work, but it relied on Tony having remaining physical strength. They told him to climb as far down as he could, then cut away the dead body of Willie. He would then need to climb back up, tie himself again, and cut the rope just underneath him. Then, with one frozen arm, he would need to unwind the short section of rope and fasten together the pieces to lower down to the rescue team. This thin rope, not strong enough to hold Tony's weight, would then be used to raise up a stronger rope supplied by the rescue team, which he would need to tie to his own and use to descend. Over the course of five painstaking hours, Tony worked to make a new rope to lower to the guides. He cut Willie's body from the rope, but it did not fall, as the freezing rain from the night before had frozen it solidly to the cliff. He then climbed up about 25 feet with one working arm and frozen feet and used his axe to cut a section of rope below him. Then, using his teeth and his one good hand, he began to unwind the short section of rope and tied each section together to lower to the guides. The sun passed its peak in the sky and began to sink slowly into the west. At one point, an avalanche thundered down the mountain, bringing rocks and snow careening past the guides. The debris unseated Willie's frozen body from the cliff face and it hurled past the rescue team, tumbling down the mountain into the valley below. Finally, Tony finished his makeshift guide rope and lowered it to the rescuers. His strength was nearly exhausted. The guides attached a thicker, stronger rope to it, along with some climbing supplies in case Tony needed to climb down the cliff face. But even the rescue rope was not long enough so they tied a second rope to it near the bottom. Somehow, after four nights of no sleep, exposure to the wind and rain, and with one good arm, Willie managed to slowly haul the rope and gear up over the course of an hour. He then began the slow, torturous descent. Tony came into view, 50 feet above the guides. Now 30 feet, then 20. Then suddenly he came to a halt. The knot the rescuers had tied to attach the second rope to the first was too large to fit through Tony's carabiner. He could not descend further. So here we see an image of some rope tied in a knot and we see a carabiner which is a little ring made of metal that you can use to attach yourself to a rope. Carabiner is trying to slide down but it is blocked by the knot. The guides could hear him groaning as he fought to get the knot through. Quote, try, lad, try, the frustrated rescuers cried to encourage the exhausted man. Tony, mumbling to himself, made one more effort with all his remaining strength, but he had little left. His incredible efforts had used it almost all up. His will to live had been keyed to the extreme so long as he was active. Now, 
The downward journey and the safety of the rope sling had eased the tension. He was nearing his rescuers now. Now the battle was nearly over. Now there were others close at hand to help. And now this knot. Just a single knot. But it won't go through. Just one more try, pal. It'll go. There was a note of desperation in the guide's appeal. One last revolt against fate. One last call on the last reserves of strength against this last and only obstacle. Tony bent forwards, trying to use his teeth just once more. His frozen left arm with its useless hand stuck out stiff and helpless from his body. His last reserves were gone. Tony mumbled unintelligibly, his handsome young face dyed purple with frostbite and exhaustion, his lips just moving. Was he still trying to say something or had his spirit already passed over to the beyond? Then he spoke again, quite clearly. I'm finished, he said. His body tipped forward. The sling, almost within reaching distance of the rescuing guides, hung swinging gently far out over the gulf. The man sitting in it was dead. Here's a photograph of that moment. We see a rope descending from what appears to be the sky from above the top of the frame. And we see this sheer cliff face and then there is a limp figure attached to the bottom of the rope. And you can see some rescuers approaching from below, trying to climb up. They're so close, they're almost the same size in the frame, they couldn't be more than 10 or 20 metres away. What to make of the men who climb? I remember when I first finished hearing this story, simply being overwhelmed by it. It was so terrible, with so many chances for things to have gone differently. If only Willie hadn't been hit by falling rocks. If only they had turned back an hour earlier, they would have completed the belay an hour earlier and avoided the avalanche. If only Hinterstoiser hadn't removed the fixed ropes. If only one of the guides hadn't dropped the longer rope, there would have been no knot for Tony to get stuck on. If only Tony hadn't dropped his glove in the storm, he might have had use of both hands. If only these brave idiots had decided not to make an attempt that season, like the other five climbers who left weeks before. So what do we make of these men, who risk so much for so little? Are these urges to go forth and conquer, to take great risk for little practical benefit, simply evolutionary vestiges of a world now gone? Are they misdirected expressions of an inner urge to distinguish oneself? Are they simply far out on the tail end of the distribution of a trait that, in moderation, is actually quite helpful? Do these actions somehow make sense in a way I don't yet understand? The idea that these climbers don't understand the risk they are taking on doesn't seem to hold water. They understand the danger of climbing these mountains, especially those that haven't been climbed before. Reinhold Messner one of the greatest climbers of all time, and the first to summit Everest without oxygen, explained that when he climbs, his mind tells him to go back, to not venture forth into the dark, cold and desolate winds. Yet he does. And I watch, with a mixture of horror, dread and fascination. Like one of the gawking tourists at Kleiner Scheidegg, I watch through my glowing rectangle the pain and the tragedy these men endure to stand on top of a mountain that has already been climbed. I have to give a shout out to a comment here 
Romeo Stevens it, comments, most men lead lives of quiet desperation, some lead lives of loud desperation. This was an audio version of Tony Coors and the Insanity of Climbing Mountains, written by Gene Smith, published on the 4th of July 2022. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to comment, you can do so on Less Wrong by following the link in the podcast description. If you'd like your writing to appear on this podcast, consider writing something on Less Wrong and it may be selected for curation.